0: I never do that. Okay. I'm going to start by saying this. Um, we all need examples. Okay. We all need examples in the faith. And, 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 and that is because the Christian life is, is marked by mistakes and compromise and failure. Um, and I know that sounds kind of harsh, right? But I think if if any of us just examines our hearts a little bit, we we recognize that, right? We feel that there is this faithfulness out there, right? This this way of living living faithfully for Christ that is out there that we are somehow missing out on, right? That we are there are pieces of it that we just can't seem to to grab. We fall short, right, in all kinds of different ways. Now Jesus is merciful, right? And Jesus is gracious, and He walks alongside us, regardless of that fact, right? He walks with us. Um, he is, and that's sort of the beauty of His grace, right? That we are like children, right? And and we fumble along this thing, and we make mistakes, and we tear up the house, and and yet our patient, gracious Father is there, walking beside us, regardless, right? Uh, we never move on from that reality, right? That is the that is the, the the sort of bedrock truth of the gospel. We never move on from that grace that we have in Jesus Christ. It's our footing, okay? That is the solid ground that is the foundation of our hope. That grace, um, our faithfulness, right? The way we live that out is is like shifting sands, okay? Jesus and the grace that He shows us is the bedrock, okay? So we're that that's where we start, right? But again, that bedrock that grace and even that 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 the way that we mess up all the time right shouldn't make us pessimistic about the goal of faithfulness about the goal of living rightly in the way that Jesus has called us to um living out the commands like the commands that we've seen in the last few weeks in the sermon on the plain okay and so that is a life of growing faithfulness to god however imperfect Okay, And it's not a pipe dream, right? It's not an illusion. It's not something that we just sort of say, man, the, the, Jesus wants us to live a certain all these kind of ways. And it's just we're incapable of that. And it's impossible. So I even try. It's a good thing he died for us, right? That's not the way that he has designed this whole thing to work, okay? And so in light of that, we need examples, okay? We need examples of somebody who's doing it, right? Somebody who is living their faith out in the way that Jesus has called us to. And so God gives us an example in this passage. And so I think that that's the reason why Luke follows the, the sort of teaching section of the Sermon on the Plain with this story about this guy, this um, uh, centurion um, that uh, Jesus talks about in this, or that Luke talks about in this passage, right? This centurion becomes an example of the faithfulness that Jesus has just described. And more than that, he becomes an example of faith itself. Faith that undergirds and makes possible the faithfulness to the the, the commands of Jesus. Okay, So so let me show you what I mean by that. But again, what we notice is, is really cool, and this is in keeping with the way Luke has been working the whole time, right? This example that we have of faithfulness and of faith, he doesn't come from the religious leaders. He doesn't come from the Pharisees. In fact, he doesn't even come from Jesus' own disciples. Right, The guy that is the example is the outsider. He is the enemy. He's, in fact, a Roman centurion. So verse 1, chapter 7 of Luke, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So we've talked about before how Capernaum sort of was Jesus' home base, right? It was, it was the place that he uh, worked from in terms of his Galilean ministry. Verse 2. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Okay, so now a centurion, probably most of us thinking—are in general, we know what a centurion is. Um, a, a centurion was a professional military officer in the Roman Legion, okay? And so I, I kind of did a little reading up because it was interesting. I kind of like military history and stuff like that. And um, so an everyday soldier in the Roman Empire was called a legionnaire. And so about eight or ten legionnaires would be in what was called a tent group. And that makes, you know, they're the guys that are in the same tent together when you're out on on maneuvers or whatever, right? And so eight or ten guys would be in a tent group together. Then there was a century or ten tent groups. And so you think about it, it makes sense. Century, hundred, 10 times 10 guys is about 100 people, right? So a 10 tent groups were called a century. The guy who was over the century was a centurion. Alright? And then, and then if, if, if you're interested in knowing, six centuries make up a cohort. It's about 600 people. 10 cohorts make up a legion, which is about 6,000 people. But here is this guy, so he's a century. Uh, he's a centurion, right? And so if you're thinking of modern military, like American military, probably somewhere equivalent to a lieutenant. Okay, so he's a commissioned officer kind of guy over a certain number of troops, has responsibility, has taken that next step in leadership, has an important role in 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 the Roman military and and sort of the the, the way it performs. Okay, um, so so this guy is a, a professional soldier, and right, if you know anything about New Testament history. Um, you know that the Romans and the Jews don't like each other, right? You know that the Romans are an occupying force in the in 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 Palestine and in, in in the Jewish people's land. Um, they don't like each other, okay? But the interesting thing is is that this centurion becomes a real life example, a parable you could say, a living parable of the kind of person Jesus has just been describing in the Sermon on the Plain. All right, and so let me show you what I mean by that, like verse 4. So it, it says this, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. Okay, now before we get into his character, let's notice two things about the, the way he is talked about in this passage, Okay. First off, there's this word that occurs twice, and it's this word worthy. All right, The Jews use the word, and then the centurion uses the word also. The Jews seem to talk about worthiness because they think that because of this man's moral goodness, because of his generosity he is somehow worthy to have this thing done for him, right? He is worthy to be blessed by Jesus for Jesus to do this thing for him, okay? And we may be putting too much emphasis on, emphasis on that. He may just kind of be using worthy in a more general way, but I, but I think there's something to be said for the fact that we see that word twice. The Jews say, this guy's a good guy. He's done good things. He has, he, he has lived in a righteous way. Therefore, he deserves to be blessed. God. He deserves to be blessed, Jesus. Um, But I wonder if 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 the the reason why Luke includes that is because he's setting the stage for something, right? Because he's implying um, that common religious idea that we've talked about for weeks, right? That there is a typical picture of what a religious person is, and that religious person is deserves God's blessing in some way, because of the way they've lived, okay? And the truth is, is that we all fall into that kind of default position a lot of times. The reason you know that is because of questions like, why do bad things happen to good people, right? We've probably all asked that question before in our lives. Why do bad things happen to good people? But there's the question itself reveals something about our hearts. It reveals the fact that we assume good things should happen to good people. I think maybe a better question is we might ought to say, why shouldn't bad things happen to good people? Okay? Because the, the, the point that we're getting at here is that there is nobody worthy, right? God does not owe blessing to anybody. And in fact, you know what? Even though the Jews seem to say he deserves these things, Jesus, when you talk to the centurion himself, what does he say? The word worthy pops back up, but the centurion doesn't say that he is worthy of these things, right? In fact, the centurion says the opposite. He says, you know what? I'm not even worthy to have you come in my house, Jesus. I am not worthy to have you step under my roof. Because it's true, right? He, 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 he recognizes that God doesn't owe him anything. And so it's two very different conceptions of, of that idea of worthiness, okay? Now, but but notice this. Again, we're not denying that the righteousness of this man's life. In fact, I think that's the point of the passage. But it's also a reminder to us to say, man, his righteousness doesn't earn him something from God. His righteousness doesn't put God in his debt, okay? He doesn't get to stand before the courtroom of heaven and say, God, you didn't pay me my due because I lived the kind of life that I was supposed to, and I didn't get what I was supposed to get out of it. There's no room for that. The centurion wisely knows that. He says, now, I'm not worthy of anything, right? Uh, I am completely at the mercy of God for all of these things. And so, but at the same time, we see that this man is a righteous man. So look at the things it says about him, and then think about the stuff that we just read in the Sermon on the Plain, okay? So one, first off, he is a victim of adverse circumstances, Okay, so you remember at the beginning of the Beatitude section of the of the sermon uh, on the plane where it said, "Blessed are these people, blessed are these people, woe to these people, woe to these people." Right, and so we talked about the fact that sorrow and trial have entered in um, to this guy's world. Right, a life threatening situation has come in into uh, uh, the life of his beloved servant that he has. Okay, and certainly. If this man was a religious man, there is this kind of idea, this kind of wisdom that says, if if this guy's so good, then God, why are you allowing bad things to happen in his life? But no, what did we learn? We read, blessed are those who weep now. Okay, Just because difficult things are happening in your life, bad things, hard things, doesn't necessarily mean that you are outside of God's will somehow. Okay, You may be in the center of God's will. Faithfulness does not necessarily bring you all the good stuff that you want. Bad things still happen, and yet God still sees, right? And this man, even in spite of those bad things, still seeks after God. So the second thing we notice about him, what did it tell us? As a centurion, the fact that he's a centurion is important because he's an enemy of the nation of Israel, right? So again, Israel is this backwater post in the Roman Empire. Nobody wants to go to Israel. OK, uh, it is it's not where you want to be if you're somebody who's uh, moving up in in the Roman Empire. The Jews are persistent in their rebellion, in their resistance, to assimilation, right, in their obnoxiousness to not conform to the Roman Empire. OK, and so, again, remember your history. This is around the year, probably 30 A.D. What happens in the year 70 A.D., just 40 short years later? Well, the Romans finally decide, you know what the best way to deal with the, the, the Israelite, the Israelite problem is? To wipe them out. Right? To wipe the city of Jerusalem off the face of the earth. And that's exactly what they do. They come in, they burn, they kill, they tear down the temple so that not a stone is left on top of each other, right? That's the solution to the problem. Jerusalem is burned to the ground in 70 AD. And yet, this centurion who is, by his very profession, an enemy to the nation of Israel, and yet, what does he do? He seems to love the people of Israel, right? Just like we saw in chapter 6, verse 35, he loves his enemies, and he does good to them. How does he do good to them? Well, he has been incredibly generous to these people who can never adequately repay him by funding the construction of their synagogue in the, in the city of Capernaum. Right? And so again, what did that passage just tell us in chapter six, the sermon on the plane, right? Lend to people expecting nothing in return. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And that's exactly what we see this guy doing, right? This centurion is living that kind of life. And then again, finally, we see the humility that was depicted in the Sermon on the Plain. So in, in verse 6, when, when Jesus went with them, uh, it says, When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to even come to you. But to say, but say the word and let my servant be healed, right? So again, he says, I'm not worried that have you in my house. I felt unworthy even to come into your presence. So I sent some religious men, right? I sent some religious men from the Jewish community to go talk to you because I, I am so unworthy to be in your presence. Okay. There is a humility that is exemplified in this guy, even though his power and position as a Roman military official would present him every opportunity to throw his weight around, right? As, as a, as a centurion, man, he could have done whatever he wanted to. He could have commanded Jesus to come and, and, and threatened life and death or whatever, if he hadn't come, but he doesn't use that, right? He's used to commanding people and having them obe- having them obey, but he doesn't throw his weight around. He will not use that power against Jesus. He feels unworthy. To be even in Jesus' presence, okay. And, and how, what do we what did we learn a couple weeks ago? Blessed are the poor, okay. And we talked about how. Remember, that's not specifically financial poverty, economic poverty, right? That word that that you remember the two words, um, tokos, tocos in the Greek. It means destitute. It means spiritually bankrupt. All right. Those who are humble, meek, those who have a realistic understanding of their, of their relationship, their weakness, their standing before God. Those who are not blinded by the log of self-righteousness that is in their own eye and can see rightly who they are and who they are in relationship to others and to God, right? This centurion is as much the kind of man that the Sermon on the Plain described that we could hope to see, Okay? And what's more, from this posture of humility, he sees something that nobody else seems to be seeing yet, and he and he knows the answer to a question that nobody else seems to even be asking quite yet. This is what we're going to see in the coming weeks. So the the following section in chapter 7 is the story of John the Baptist being imprisoned, and then John the Baptist basically says, send some messengers, messengers to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus... Are you the one, like, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're waiting for, or we should we be looking for somebody else? You want to know why he's asking that question? For the same reason we're talking about here, because bad things are happening to a good man, because John, the prophet of the Lord, is in prison with his head on the block, right? And so John himself is thinking in those categories, man, Jesus, if you're really God, or if you're really Messiah, then how come I'm in prison, right? Why am I here? Why is this thing not happening in a different way? We're going to talk more about that story in a couple of weeks. But even John the Baptist is asking the question, Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the person that we've been looking for? But here's what's interesting. Not this centurion. He seems to be aware of what Jesus' disciples will be reminded of in the Great Commission. And that is that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. It's like he already knows this. He already suspects this somehow about Jesus. Look at verse 8. He says, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. So, so notice what the centurion recognizes. I'm not saying that this centurion understood the Trinity or the incarnation or even that Jesus was the prophesied Jewish Messiah that was to come. I'm not saying that he understands any of these things on that level. Okay, But he doesn't really need to understand them on that level because he understands something else. He understands authority. He understands the nature of authority. And he understands that if Jesus is the prophet of God, sent from God, then he has all access to all power and all possibility. Now, it it it, it doesn't say this in the text, and we can't know for sure, but the fact that this centurion built the Jews their synagogue may indicate that he was what the Bible refers to as a God-fearer. Okay, and, and a God-fearer was basically someone outside the Jewish faith, outside Jewish ethnicity, but somebody who recognized Yahweh, somebody who recognized the one true God, worshiped the one true God, but had not yet taken all of the steps to become a proselyte, right, to become fully enter into the Jewish faith. Okay, but was somebody who still worshiped God and recognized the authority of God. Okay, and so if that's the case, which again is 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 a, is a step, right? It's not in the text, but but it wouldn't be hard to imagine that that was the case. If that's so, we he would probably be f- familiar with the Jewish scriptures, right? He would be familiar with the Genesis account of a God who speaks things into existence, right? A God who said, "Let there be," and there was. A God who can, just from his words, create something out of nothing. And so if Jesus is the servant of this God and calls on this God, then nothing is beyond his authority and nothing is beyond his command. And this humble man of faith thinks that Jesus can do anything. That Jesus is capable of doing anything he pleases. Because if God can speak light and matter and planets and stars and constellations and life and spirit into being with just a word. Then all he needs to do to heal a servant of this disease is to say the word and it will be so. And so. What happens next in the passage is, is something I come back to over and over again in my preaching and in my personal faith. If you've been in this church for any amount of time, you've heard me talk about it before. If you were in youth group before, you've heard me talk about it multiple times. And it is the line in verse 9 where it says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him that Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. He is amazed by it. He is filled with wonder and astonishment at the centurion's faith. Okay, Think about what that means for a second. The same Jesus who was there at creation, who was... Who threw light and matter and planets and stars and constellations and life and spirit into being with a word looks at this Roman centurion and says, wow, I've never seen anything like that. Certainly not among the people of God. Humans really are amazing creatures. You can learn all that there is to know about their ways in a month and yet a hundred, after a hundred years, they can still surprise you. And so have you ever considered that you are capable of amazing God? But it's not, notice again, it's not this man's generosity that is the thing that, that, that elicits Jesus marveling. It's not his love for his enemies. It's not even his humility that amazes Jesus, right? This text says it's the centurion's faith. Because all those other things, the generosity, the love for enemy, the humility, all those things flow out of faith, right? They flow out of a life of faith, a heart that has been changed by faith, right? A faith in God. And I know I have asked that question before and, and, and will again, but it speaks to the centrality of faith in our lives. And again, and not faith in general, we're not just generic people of faith, right? We're not people who have faith in faith. We are people who have faith in a person, faith in the one and only source of authority, and that is Jesus Christ. And so again, Jesus turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, that they found the servant well. Sometimes those of us who should understand things best are the people who remember them least. I think that's true of people in the church oftentimes, right? When we talk about this picture of Jesus saying, not even in Israel have I found such faith. I think what happens sometimes is we begin to take God for granted. We begin to assume that he works in certain ways and in certain categories and that he's not going to work outside of those ways. We haven't seen him do certain things before, and so he's probably not going to do these things now. But the truth is, is that just as a centurion realizes, God can do whatever he pleases. God can make anything happen. We've talked about it before about how in our lives, in terms of evangelism, sharing our faith with with our neighbors and our friends and our family, that probably many of us um, don't do that like we should, right? And we ask ourselves, well, why don't I do that like we sh- I should? And again, there's all the typical answers. Well, I'm scared, might get rejected, don't know what to say, don't know all the answers, what if they try to stump me, uh, you know, I, all these things. And I've said before, I don't think any of those are the real reason. They may be a piece of the reason why we don't share our faith with other people, but they're not the real reason. The real reason is this. We don't share our faith because we don't think it's going to do any good. Because we've already decided the categories we've put people's lives in. We've already put people in all the boxes they need to be in. And we've said, God's not going to do anything about that. That person's just going to sit there and do their thing. And, and that's what's going to happen. And we don't believe that we have a God who has authority over everything in people's lives. And that people who are so deep in their own sin and so deep in their own rebellion, and yet in a moment, upon hearing the gospel, having their hearts changed, that they can turn to Jesus Christ, they can be made new, that God can do anything because he has authority over those things. He has authority over our lives. He has authority over our hearts and souls. He has authority even over our minds and our emotions. And God can do those things. And so he calls us to this centurion's kind of faith. And so I'll kind of close with this and ask, do we have that kind of faith? Are we people who have a centurion's faith, a faith that believes in a God who can accomplish anything? Even when we deserve nothing. A faith that is nonetheless, even though it doesn't deserve anything, is recognized by God. That God rewards that faith. A kind of faith that bears fruit in a world and a kind of faith that stands true when the floods of life hit. Do we have that kind of centurion's faith? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus himself marvels at it, that he is amazed by that kind of faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I want to be that kind of person. God, I want to have a faith that looks like that centurion's faith. God, that really believes. God, that despite my unworthiness, God, despite... um, the situations of life, despite their severity. God, that you are a God of all power and all authority. That you can and will and do things that we would never expect. God, that you change hearts, you change situations, you change lives, God, you bring healing, you bring salvation, you bring peace, God, you, you show up where we least expect you to and do the things that we never expected you would. God, because in that you demonstrate your power, you demonstrate your authority, And so we thank you for this scripture, God. We thank you for uh, the authority that is recognized by this Roman centurion, a man whose name is lost to history, but, God, not lost to you because you know him, God. And I believe that he is probably in heaven even as we speak, God, that we will meet him one day, um, that we will know this person, God, and, and, and reflect on the example that he has set before us of a centurion's faith, Father, help us to have that kind of faith. Help us to believe in you. Help us to trust in you in all circumstances and stand strong during all the trials of life. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
1: Grace that brings i yeah. He's the merit.
0: You could join us tonight. Um, hope you have a great week, um, and we'll uh, uh, we'll close with this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn His face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.